Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 28, reading through verse 34. 28 through 34 of Mark 10, once again, God's holy word. Mark 10, beginning in verse 28. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to them, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. After three days, he will rise. As for the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. us. So what is a good investment? Where do you prefer to put your investments? Well, there's always stocks and bonds, your classic 401ks and IRAs. Real estate is a common venture for growth. Others put their money in silver and gold. And many today are convinced that the best investment is in Bitcoin or some other digital currency. Though whichever is your preference, prudence still advocates to diversify. But the basic principle of investing is that you save today so that you will have more in the future. And saving is to restrain, to forego, to not enjoy in in, in the present. That is, you deny yourself now by putting your money aside in hope that when you retire or cannot work anymore, that you will have plenty to support yourself. Investing is essentially the wisdom of the ant. You store away now to survive the winter. Well, as Jesus is teaching us about his kingdom, he has his own principle of investing, which is quite different than anything we're familiar with in our age. So you probably have your favorite TV show, and a common feature is the cliffhanger ending. They end one episode on a super intense moment and make you wait for the resolution until the next episode drops. In this way, the episodes hold together as one continuous drama. And this is how Mark put together his 10th chapter. Ever since Jesus held the kids in his arms, Basically, we have a single dramatic scene. Our Lord announced that we can only enter the kingdom as a child, and so the rich guy put this to the test. He ran up and pled, what must I do to have eternal life? Jesus responded, you know the commandments, do them. But Lord, I've done these all my days, what else is there? Well, how about you sell everything and become poor behind me? But this was too much. The wealthy guy loved his money too much, and so he departed sad. Our Lord then turned to his disciples to declare how difficult it is, nay, impossible, for rich people to enter the kingdom. And after a coronary, the disciples uttered in despair, Who then can be saved? 
And Jesus said, no one. Salvation is impossible for humans. It is outside the realm of the possibility for them. But with God, it's possible. Yeah, we paused on a cliffhanger at the end of verse 27. The salvation impossible for us is made possible by God. And so on the edge of our seat, biting our lip, we have to know how God does it. God must reveal his secret. Yet as we wait for God's voice, Peter pipes up. Good old Peter, he always has a word to butt in with. And so he raises his hand, Jesus, Jesus, pick me. Yes, Peter, behold, we have left everything and followed you. Peter heard impossible, and his reaction is to, is to say is, yeah, but we did it. In fact, he's comparing himself with the lamenting rich guy who just walked away. He couldn't sell everything and follow Jesus, but Peter and the apostles, they did. They abandoned every last thing to line up behind our Lord. Peter essentially brags that he's better than the rich guy. He and the disciples did what was worthy enough to open the door of the kingdom. Once again, Peter is competing. For the past chapter or so, Jesus has been telling his disciples that faith and piety are not a contact sport. The first will be the last and servant of all. And yet here is Peter still playing the game to be the best. Though we should be skeptical of Peter's boast. Is this really true? How much wind is he blowing Well, it is accurate that Peter and the others gave up their jobs. James and John quit being a fisherman. Matthew resigned his career as a taxman. And yet in chapter 1, Peter and Andrew still owned a house in Capernaum, which they used for entertaining Jesus. If you own a home, does this qualify as leaving everything? Next, Peter was just a poor fisherman. Is a peasant giving up all he has, is this actually better than a rich person divesting their entire future? Well, maybe, but maybe not. Finally, it is evident how the, the apostles have considered their following Jesus. They have argued who was the greatest. They enjoyed being our Lord's gatekeeper. Following Jesus for them was about gaining important offices of honor and authority. They had eyes for the top spots in Jesus' earthly kingdom. Thus, Peter is thinking of his sacrifice as an investment. They gave up everything in order to get the high returns of prestige in God's kingdom. But this makes you wonder... Is this really what Jesus means by following him? If you sacrifice in the present in order to win for yourself greater profits and promotions in the future, does this really break out of the self-interest mold? How is this different from the world? More particularly, how does this escape the pattern of merit? Peter asserts that his giving up all and following is worthy of rewards. The apostles did better than the rich man, and so they deserve a key into the kingdom. Jesus, we earned our place, did we not? 
Well, our Lord responds in a way that first seems to be affirming Peter. With all certainty, he says, Truly I say to you, anyone who's left house or family for me will receive a hundredfold return. This does sound like investing logic. And yet the details make all the difference. To begin with, this list is connected by or. The person left house or sister, father or farmlands. This is not everything, not all per se, but it's something very precious and necessary. House and farm is well, your, your livelihood and shelter. While children or mother, these are your closest and dearest relationships. These are deep sacrifices that could endanger your life, that threaten you with shame and dishonor. She abandoned her family? How despicable. Thus note the reason for leaving all this behind. He says, for my sake and for the gospel. This is an either-or. It is a tension, a decision of loyalty. You have to pick one or the other. You cannot have both. And so the person gave up brother and career in order to cling to the gospel of Christ. Indeed, note, there is no mention of charity or almsgiving here. This is not selling your farm to help the poor. And why? Because a popular doctrine of the day was that almsgiving was meritorious for the age to come. A clink in the, clock, in the cup was the sound of heaven bells ringing. Our Lord, though, makes this forsaking a matter of faith, a commitment to Christ himself. That is, your family was ordering you not to follow Jesus, but you held on to the gospel in faith, even at the cost of your family disowning you. Jesus focuses our giving up on him and his gospel. It is trusting in the gospel over against anything else that would steal our trust away from him. But then there's the reward. For giving up family for the gospel, Jesus promises a hundredfold return. And what stands out in this reward is that it is now in the present time. He encourages us with earthly benefits. That is, Jesus will give back to us what we lost at a hundredfold increase. You lost one mom for the gospel only to be blessed with a hundred more moms. Though this is a bit odd. We're used to earthly loss for heavenly gain, but Christ promises returns in the present time. How does this work? We'll simply put the church. As we come to Christ in his gospel, our natural families sometimes reject us. Faith in Christ divides families. It can end careers. Parents disown kids, sisters snub brothers, and kids reject parents. And yet in the church, Jesus gives us a new and bigger family. Among the saints, there are many older men and women who can mentor us as moms and dads. The lady that lost her kids can find many more kids to teach and love on. Teenagers get extra peers to be sisters and brothers in Christ. Therefore, Jesus is not answering Peter on the plane of merit as he spoke on, 
but he's actually giving us tender comforts to ease the bitterness of life. Yes, in coming to Christ in faith, we often lose close family members. But our Savior does not leave us isolated. Instead, he incorporates us into his new family. And our family, true family, grows bigger in the church to cheer us and encourage us along in our pilgrim way. Indeed, Jesus drops a word here that keeps us sober. He says, with persecutions. Tribulations and sufferings accompany our Lord's a hundredfold blessing. New life in Christ in the church is no cakewalk. People will hate us for Christ's sake. The world will mock and ridicule our faith in the gospel. Our new church family, we're yet a school of sinners where we step on each other's toes and get kicked in the shins from time to time. The rich benefits of the church are far from perfect. And so thus Jesus lifts her eyes to eternity. You will also receive everlasting life in the age to come. By faith in Christ and his gospel, Jesus grants you heavenly life. This faith is exclusive. That is, it lets go of everything or anything that will pull it away from its one and only object, Jesus Christ. But by trusting in Jesus, you are given an immortal and incorruptible life in heaven. And such an eternal glory far outstrips any return on investment. Trust in Christ is no, um, it doesn't earn life as compound interest on an, an initial deposit. Therefore, merit is excluded here by our Lord. Peter asserted that his sacrifice was worthy of the kingdom. And Jesus confirms that faith in him will suffer loss and harm here and now. Yet, Christ's return on faith far surpasses any mathematical investment plan to highlight his grace alone. In fact, Jesus adds one more comment here to show and remind us that his math is not like ours. He says, many first will be last and the last first. Here Jesus restates the point that he made back in chapter 8, that if you want to be first, you must be the last and servant of all. And he meant by this that our piety and faith in Christ should not compete. Our devotion to Christ is not a competition for positions of honor and glory, but it's about humble service of one another. The world and the disciples were playing the self-promotion game to win the trophy. And our Lord said, no. Following Jesus is about forgetting about yourself to help and serve others as their servant. Thus, he repeats this truth here. If you think losing your family earns you honor in the church, you're sorely mistaken. This hundredfold return is not a math equation for you to flaunt your devotion for songs of praise. No, instead, Christ's uh, reward comes with persecutions and sufferings, as well as those that we in the world often consider to be in the last place, 
The losers, they will often be first in the eyes of Christ. It is not by winning that that we put a smile on Jesus' face, but it's by losing and being last for his sake and the sake of the gospel. And being last is not just something for us, but losing first happened to our Savior. Note here, Mark again reminds us where we are. Jesus has been on the road, and they're heading to Jerusalem. This encounter with the rich man and Peter's boast was a road trip conversation. Though for the first time, Mark now explicitly notes the destination for Jesus is Jerusalem. Jesus Jesus exited off the turnpike that takes him directly to Jerusalem. And from an Old Testament perspective, this ascent to Jerusalem should be a happy one. The trip to Jerusalem was the pilgrim way. It was the road to the holy city to celebrate the joyous feast of the covenant. In the sacred city, you found the glories of God's house, the sweet hymns of worship, and the peaceful feasting with the Lord. Besides, Jerusalem is the city of the king. Well, Jesus is the Christ, the son of David, and Mark has not put Jesus in Jerusalem once in his gospel. For Mark, this is the first time that the the Messiah will minister in Jerusalem. Surely expectations are high. The hope for triumphs are near. But note how the emotions of the followers are mixed. Jesus is walking ahead, and those in his train have opposing responses. Some are amazed, astounded. This is presumably positive. They're in awe of something wonderful about to occur. Though this amazement might have a touch of shock and anxiety stirred in. They're surprised at something marvelous, but they are unsure what it will be. But the other part of followers... Note, they're just afraid. The disciples are scared that dangers loom ahead. They want good things to come, but they're terrified that evil lurks inside the gates of Jerusalem. Thus, our Lord addresses this amazement and fear, but not in the way you expect. Typically, when the disciples are afraid, Jesus consoles them. Do not fear, for it is I. Here, though, he kind of does the opposite. You're afraid? Well, good, you should be. For now, for the third time in Mark's gospel, our Lord predicts his passion. And this is no mere repetition, but he takes us deeper. First, Jesus opens with, with what is usually a positive. We're going to Jerusalem. It's time to worship and rejoice before God in the temple as the Messiah comes to the city of David. But this is not the welcome he will receive. Instead, as the Son of Man, he will be arrested by the chief priests and scribes. The scribes and the chief priests make up the ruling authority of God's people. The Pope, the Archbishop of Canterbury, and the General Assembly are all wrapped up in the priest and the scribes. The chief priests were the highest court under the Mosaic law, and their ruling had the authority of God himself. While the scribes, they were considered the authoritative interpreters of God's word. 
They're the ones who had the competency and the knowledge to tell you what the word meant and what they said was it. In fact, after exile, God reestablished the priesthood in Jerusalem, but he didn't do so for the kingship. In this way, the priest held their position as stewards. They oversaw the kingly duties for a time until the king returned. These chief priests were supposed to bend the knee and hand the scepter over to the Davidic king upon his arrival. But Jesus says this will not happen. Rather, the authorities will arrest him and condemn him to death as a criminal. Instead of honoring the Messiah, they will deny him the right to life. And they will hand him over to the Gentiles. Now, particularly, this reflects that the Sanhedrin, that of the priest, they did not have the authority to execute the death penalty. Only Rome could do this. And yet, in the Old Testament, to hand over to the Gentiles was God's curse of being forsaken and disowned. Thus, the priest will declare in God's name the ultimate curse upon Jesus. They will cast him out of the covenant as roadkill for the Gentile dogs to devour. And then the Gentiles will mock and spit him, whip, beat, and kill him. And yet this harsh treatment is not just about death. Rather, this is the social, psychological, and physical torment of shame. In the first century and in scripture, there is something worse than death which is shame. Marble statutes were carved for heroic deaths, but shame was heaped upon those who were judged to have no value, who were despicable and disgusting. Shame was the revulsion of being worse than an evil and worthless insect. A shameful death was the ultimate prejudice and dehumanization to be treated worse than a beast. And shame was a judgment of society, the world, and God. It is both a horizontal and vertical judgment. A shameful death takes from that person everything. Their possessions, their clothes, their family, their community, their personhood, even their sanity. And this is the impoverished death awaiting the Son of Man. The Messiah of David will be rendered as a gross nothing. Ever since the rich man asked the question, Jesus has kept the the conversation focused on what must be lost, given up, or sacrificed. What does it take to earn everlasting life? First, you must keep the law Second, you must give it all up. The rich man had to give away all his money, which he could not do. Thus, by the almsgiving of the wealth, it was impossible to earn or enter the kingdom. Then Peter piped up as having done it. They gave everything, house and family. Surely this sacrifice is worthy of the kingdom. But no, Jesus corrected them. The vast reward of heaven far exceeds anything that we can give up here and now. 
So then what is the sacrifice that wins true life? What is the loss that gains heaven? Well, here it is. The shameful death of the Son of Man under the cruel torments of the priest and the deadly venom of the world. It's to be rejected by church and world, friend and foe, family and country. And this must be endured as the Son of Man, one who is righteous, pure, and innocent. The shame had to be undeserved. If we experienced or suffered a shameful death, it would not be good enough because in our sin, we deserve such a punishment. Death as a sinner is not a loss, but only a payment due. But as the Son of Man, the Holy Christ tasted the shameful death as a loss in our place. It stole from him all that was rightfully his. And this is what Jesus did for your salvation, because he gave his life freely for you. He loved you enough to suffer the worst fate, to drink that shameful poison, to be lost in your place. And because Jesus was spent for you, grace's return is a hundredfold. Indeed, as he predicts, since he was reviled and spit upon and executed, he wins the resurrection. This is why faith clings to Christ and his gospel and lets go of everything else. For Christ's death is our only salvation. The cross of Christ is the possible of God, which made our impossible salvation ours in him. Indeed, as our trust rests in the righteous sacrifice of our Savior, thus you can know that you are heirs of heaven, and his grace enables us to love and to serve one another as servants as all. Indeed, strengthened by Christ's grace alone, we can live as a new family of God, as brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers, and children, and serve each other by his grace alone and for the good of one another.